0: God, in a, in a world filled with noise, and God, in a world filled with busyness, filled with things to watch and listen to, and things to swipe on our phones, we choose tonight to come before you, uh, regardless of our backgrounds, uh, whether this is our first time in a church building, or the thousandth time, uh, we don't want just dead routine, sing a few songs, read a few verses and go home. God, we want to know you. We want to experience you. Uh, We want to listen to your voice. We believe you are here. We believe you are good. We believe that you are at work this very moment and that, Jesus, you have done everything necessary to open up and connect heaven and earth tonight. So would you make, Lord, this space a holy ground May you set it apart, that we would know and hear from you tonight. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So one of the perks of my job is to have the honor to officiate weddings. And over the past 23 years of pastoral life for me, I went and counted it up. I've done roughly... 75 weddings uh, and had a husband and a wife say I do to each other. That's a lot of premarital counseling and a lot of rehearsal dinners and a lot of wedding cake over the years. But among the pomp and circumstance of weddings, I'm not sure if you love weddings or hate weddings, uh, but at the core of them, uh, you get down to this moment, you get down to this time uh, at the heart of the ceremony where there's this exchange of vows, if you boil it all down, people do weddings different ways, different times in our country, but uh, here's something that is really important. It matters in a wedding, and it's, it's the vows. The vows matter. It's, it's this time when the bride and the groom declare their, their verbal covenant vow to become one in the sight of God and others. So no matter how good the music, or how lousy the music, or how good the dresses or allows you the dresses or how good the food or allows you the food is after in the party. Uh, This is really important in, in a wedding. It's when these two people become one flesh in the sight of God. And their vows, as they share this with one another, their vows are in many ways the way that they publicly count the cost of what they're getting into. Now, because this moment is, is so significant, I often, typically, I don't encourage couples to write their own vows. Uh, in, in some cases, I have let that happen for the sake of self-expression, but I usually end up regretting it. Like one particular wedding that is forever seared into my mind when we came to that point in the ceremony and the bride pulled out her handwritten vows and she proceeded to look at her soon to be husband and she said to him, My love for you is like diarrhea. I just can't hold it in. And like I had this out of body experience going, What is happening? What, what, you just said that out loud in a wedding in this like holy moment. Like, you're, are you kidding me? So normally vows don't sound like that. If we can put this up on the screen. Usually there's some version, give or take, like this that happens. I, whatever, take you to be my wedded wife, husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Again, this various but according to God's holy ordinance and thereto I pledge you my faith. Um you guys have heard this before though, right? right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love until cherished till death do us part. I would venture to say that there are millions of bride and grooms in the US that have spoken those words or something similar to those words. And I would also venture to guess that many of those millions really didn't understand what they were saying when they said those words. Especially in like the heat of the moment, in the midst of this beautiful, lovely ceremony where everyone's dressed up and the celebration is there, just the mood is just right. oftentimes in those moments, they celebrate the better, richer, in health part, right? We can envision that. That's the Instagram stuff. But it's the other part of the vow that we may not fully understand what we're saying, right? It's the for worse, for poorer, and sickness part that doesn't play out so well on Instagram. But the strength of the marriage vow is that both of those show up, right? Because a committed relationship is complex, is it not? Right? A committed relationship is going to endure good times and bad times. A real life relationship is not always sparkles and sunshine. Real relationships hold the tension of both. Real life love and commitment is a double-edged sword with words of joy and at times seasons that jar us. Good and bad, marvelous and messy which holds true in a marriage. It also holds true in our relationships with others. It also then holds true in relationship with God. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're in the midst of this series we've been at the last month and a half called The Great Invitation, where we've been walking through John 13 through 17, and we're listening to these words of Jesus, these final words of Jesus. It's known by some as the Upper Room Discourse. It's the the last words that Jesus shares with his disciples. They're there gathered around in the Upper Room celebrating Passover. It's the night that Jesus gets betrayed. It's right before Jesus goes to the cross. Last week, we looked at some of the words that Jesus shares, a command, an invitation of sorts we heard these beautiful, stirring, compelling words where Jesus talks about abiding. He uses the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And he says, abide in me and my words in you. And he says this idea of abiding over and over. I'll be in you and you in me as I am in the Father. And this is invitation for us to experience union with God in our experiential communion. So Jesus talked about that numerous times. The abiding life of love with God. Abide in me and I in you. So not only does a disciple follow Jesus, but a disciple is called to abide in Jesus. And we talked about what does the abiding life look like? Like What does that mean to have communion with God day in, day out? But here's the thing that we have to keep in mind regarding abiding or the abiding life is that in this union communion conversation, don't miss this, it's not one-dimensional or one-sided. In that, it's not narrow or limited just to me. As we abide in Jesus, we also engage with others and we have a relationship with the world. So today, John chapter 15, as we continue on, we find as Jesus continues the upper room discourse, he drops some really good, good news, bad news, good news, kind of tension with something that's hard, kind of a a tough pill to swallow, to use kind of the, the vow analogy. Last week was to talk about the better, richer in health part of what it means to abide with Christ, to have our lives connected and have a lifeline to God himself. I'm going to say this part, as we go into John 15, he talks about the other half. He talks about the for worse, the for poorer, and in sickness part. What does that look like? Here's here's the, the tough pill. The two pieces that Jesus shares in John 15. The first piece is he says, you are loved as my friends. I'm like, that's good news, that is great. You are loved as my friends, and he says, you will be hated by the world. Listen to this, John 15, verse 12. Again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. one another man that is rich that is beautiful jesus reminds his disciples and maybe even instructs them in a new way here and tells them you're loved as my friends like add that to the list of mind-boggling statements from jesus jesus has not only invited us to be followers though we are followers of jesus And he hasn't just invited us to be abiding in him, though we are to abide in Christ. He also says here, I call you my friends. Jesus himself says to his disciples, you're my friends. Friendship in some ways is a lost and dying art, is it not? Like in our culture, many of us are familiar with familial love. So, it's like, well, i got a mom or a dad, or I've got some siblings maybe, or I've got an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or a grandpa. I've got some people in my life, and they're there for me. Again, sometimes not always the best. Maybe it's not always the strongest. But I, like, I know familial love. I know that there's somebody who's got my back maybe. And then also in our culture, we are saturated with sexual love the promise and the allure of sexual love. But this is something even different Jesus is talking about here. Love that shows up different than just the familial and love that's different than just the sexual. And he talks about friendship. And I love how Jesus describes this. Listen to this train of thought. Verse 13, Jesus explains this great expression of love. It is a love that is willing to lay down one's life for friends. It's the ultimate selflessness. It's the ultimate self-sacrifice. It's the willingness to put the needs of the other over your own. And Jesus, in this scene, in this moment, He knows that He is really only hours away from dying. He's only hours away from showing this friendship to these people. And He says, you're my friends, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. And, and again, they have not done everything perfectly to earn this, right? This is amidst betrayal. Judas just left. This is coming up close to the time of denial, where even Peter will deny Jesus multiple times. But Jesus willingly goes to the cross, and he will be nailed to a tree, And even while he is nailed to the tree, he will forgive them. And he says from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down your life for friends. Do you know that kind of friendship? You may have a great friend. My guess is very few of us have buddies, friends, that would go to that point to lay down your life. Jesus says, I'll do that for you. And then in verse 15, he explains that the mystery of friendship, which is when you let someone in to the depth of of hidden knowledge He says, I I no longer call you servants, but a servant doesn't know what a master is doing, so I'm not going to call you servants. I've called you friends, because now you're in the know. You're not left in the dark like a servant would, trying to figure out what's happening. Because Jesus talks about here that he's going to share what the Father has shared with him, and he's going to pass that on to them. It's It's a revealing kind of friendship, not a concealing friendship. I've made it known to you. That's the kind of friendship Jesus offers. One where he reveals. Doesn't keep the secrets. Shares what the Father is up to. So Jesus is loving his friends with the depth of the greatest kind of love. And he upgrades them by bringing them into the loop and not leaving them as just servants sharing the Father's secrets that otherwise would remain possibly hidden or obscured. And then in verse 16, he says, I've chosen you. You're chosen. You did not choose me. I have chosen you. Which again, sounds odd because you go like, oh, I just read, like I read the Bible before where Jesus said, hey, come follow me, and they chose to follow him. But Jesus says, actually, what's going on here is that I have chosen you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And they're chosen, they're selected, they're wanted. And then Jesus kind of bookends all of this with this commandment to love. At the very beginning of the passage, verse 12, and then the end of this little section, verse 17, he says, this is my commandment. These are the things that I'm commanding. Love one another as I have loved you. And this is one of the great mysteries of the gospel, that God himself would take on human flesh, dwell among us. And then he would call people to follow him and say, and I'm going to call you friends. God offers friendship to you, friendship with you through Jesus and his love which I think addresses some of the deepest longings of the human soul. It addresses some of our deepest wounds and our deepest fears. Because I think if you get past the facade and the charades and what we all put on as a mask on the outside, deep down we all are asking these questions. Am I worthy of love? Am I I worth it? Will, Will I be left out or not? My chosen? Or rejected. Will I be pursued or left to do this thing on my own? And Jesus, again, sitting with this group of disciples, extends the warm welcome of the Father. Next slide. Jesus says, "You're my friends. I will show you friendship through sacrificial love. Uh, greater love has no one than this, and it'll lay down his life for his friends, and I'm going to do that very thing for you. You're my friends. I'll buy for you. Uh, you're my friends. I'm going to show you the intimacy of the hidden life. I'm not going to keep you in the dark. I'm going to let you in to what God is up to. And you're my friends. I have chosen you. You're not going to be left like at the recess playground wondering, was someone going to pick me to be on their team? Jesus says, You're my friends. I have loved you. I will die for you. I have let you into the secret place of the Father's heart. I choose you to be my friends. And that is, I don't know about you, that's just staggering to me. That God in Christ would offer that to humanity. For some, I think it feels too good to be true. And we don't understand the offer of friendship with God. You're loved, chosen, worthy of his death. Even amidst your faults and your failures, it's not something that you earn. It's not something that you deserve. God in Christ offers you friendship. It sounds good. Sounds great. It's a move by faith in Jesus to believe, to repent, and turn and receive from Him this love. But. There's more that Jesus adds to this. And he says, you are loved as my friends. And he goes on to say then, you will be hated by the world. Which again, that's that's hard. You'll be hated by the world. So that a choice to follow Jesus, a choice to receive him by faith, is a choice to be in union with Father, Son, and Spirit, to be a friend of God, to have the ability to abide in him. And it's also a choice, Jesus' words, to be hated by the world. And so in many ways, it's this this point of decision that these disciples had to make. And I think we have to make that call as well. Am I willing to count the cost of this? What am I getting into if I say yes to Jesus? Because it's not like a salad bar or a buffet. Take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That's disgusting. Nope, don't want that. It's not a pick or choose kind of thing. It's both. Our union with Jesus includes it all. His love as his friends and a definitive stance toward the world. Look at the next section here. Verse 18. Jesus is continuing his thought. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Again, Jesus is pretty explicit here. That friendship with Jesus will involve a distinctive response from the world. That a yes to Jesus in friendship is to say no to the world. Or as uh, Jesus' brother James put it in James 4 and 5, that friendship with the world is enmity or division or strife with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This, again, distinction that friendship with the world and friendship with Jesus is not compatible and that a choice for one is a choice against the other. And I know some are like, man, that's really strong language. I don't like that. It seems combative or divisive or he's drawing these lines. Um, maybe we need to clarify first what the world is that Jesus is talking about here because even that word that he uses has a a range of meaning. So a a few things the world is not. First of all, the world is not the earth itself in the physical universe. So Jesus is not trying to say somehow some negative statement about creation or the world or the, the physical earth as though that's bad or wrong or somehow we're at odds with the world in that sense. That's not the world he's talking about. Nor is his use of the world a specific person or group of people that you just don't happen to like. Which I think sometimes in the church, like, that's the world. You annoy me. And that's not what he's talking about either. Nor is the world something to be hated. Just kind of reminder from John 3, 16, one of the more popular and famous Bible verses that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because God doesn't desire the world to perish. So, if that is what the world is not, what is the world that God desires to be saved? Go to the next slide. There's a New Testament scholar, Don Carson, who says that the world, that's the Greek word kosmos, refers to the created moral order that's in active rebellion against God. And I guess it's hard to describe this with accuracy in some way because it's more complex than I think we think it is. But the world, it's the values and the beliefs and the practices of a system led by Satan in active rebellion against the kingdom of God. And it's a system that gets embodied in souls that are living in separation from God. But again, as, as Carson talks about it here, it's, the, the, it's this created moral order in active rebellion against god it's these values and beliefs that get enacted in practices it's the system of sin that shows up in souls that at its core want nothing to do with god it's the system that operates on the philosophy of independence from god trying to do things your own way and does not want god to show up and run things his way it's a choice of death because it's a choice to try and live your life on your own. John talks about this in one of his other letters. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the, the boastful pride of life, not from the Father, but it is from the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's all the stuff that is in the world that is this created moral order that is running in active rebellion against God. Which again, I think is why Jesus unpacks this. That there's actually, there's a competition of values because there's a collision of kingdoms between the way of the rule of God and those that would seek to run away from God, independent from God, apart from God. Those thoughts and values and beliefs simply cannot coexist peacefully. So, so Jesus sets the bar of expectation for his followers and his friends to expect the fact that there is going to be this collision that comes. And he says there will be hatred So Jesus doesn't define the world in this passage so much as he explains why this is existing. So a few reasons here as he says why the world will hate you if you choose friendship with Jesus. I'm just going to run off this list that Jesus gives. Verse 18, he says, the reason why there's this conflict and there's this hatred is because the world hated Jesus first. And I think often we We have an experience of something negative or rude, and we're like, whoa, why did that happen? And what did I do wrong? Or what did I do to deserve that? And Jesus makes it pretty clear here that the origin of this conflict, that the origin of the hate is not necessarily about us, but he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. All of this conflict and all of this discord, it originates with Jesus. Not everyone is for the kingdom of God. Not everyone loves Jesus. And he says, the world system hated me first. Second, he says, the reason this is happening is because you're chosen out of the world. If you have come to put your faith and trust in me, if you choose to follow me, believe in me, abide in me, There's a difference here. Verse 19, you are chosen out of the world. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. This is core to our redemption and salvation story, as Paul says in Colossians. Next slide. Colossians 1.13, Paul says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin so that by faith in Christ by by having union with Jesus here's what's happening at a supernatural level that you actually get transferred you get relocated you are delivered From one kingdom to another that god through christ actually rescues you from darkness from the domain of darkness and he places you because of his victory on the cross into light and he rescues you from the domain of the the enemy and he places you inside the kingdom of the father's beloved son jesus is saying i've chosen you out of the world and again, he will clarify as he goes on in chapter 17 of John to say, I'm not praying that you like, leave the world. The point is not to get you out of living on planet Earth among other people, but that you would be kept from the evil one. So by being, being chosen out of the world is not an escapist mentality, but it's an idea that fundamentally that you have been rescued and delivered from a different value system, a different... Belief structure, a different way of life that once was hostile to God in independent rebellion, and now you've been placed within the beloved kingdom of Jesus, of light, of freedom, of love. You are chosen out of the world, which means, practically speaking, you will feel this. You don't belong you ever traveled you ever gone to a different state and you're like whoa they don't do things like they do back home you ever been to a different country and you're like culture shock not only the language is different practices are different values are different you're like I don't I don't feel at home in this it feels foreign to me it feels alien to me different practices different customs different norms Jesus is saying you will feel that because there's good reason for that that the work of Jesus is to rescue you deliver you choose you out of a world system that's in hostility with God and to actually allow you to flourish and live the way that God intended you always to live. Our world system is built on certain conclusions about politics. Our world that we live in has a built-in conclusion about career. Our world system has a certain set of assumptions about bloodline family, about sexuality, about identity, about success, about race. And Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God runs differently, the boundaries have changed. The borders have been altered in Jesus. Our value structures are tweaked, and our allegiances have shifted. And the world system that's in active rebellion against God will not like a move of aligning yourself with the kingdom of God. Jesus says you are chosen out of the world. You'll experience hatred for that. Next slide. The world will hate you. Because Jesus has exposed its sin. It's verse 22. Jesus says if he hadn't come, then the world wouldn't have been guilty. The second half of verse 22, Jesus says, but he has come. And so now the world system has no excuse. Anybody here like to have your problems pointed out? Like when you're wrong, you just love someone to say, you're wrong. None of us do. Whenever we're wrong or in error or out of step and someone points it out, we get defensive, we deny it, we fight back. Dare I say we hate it, we despise it. And Jesus is describing what's happening in the world at a fundamental level. That Jesus has come, yes, to save, yes, to redeem, yes, to bring freedom and life. But the way in which he brings life and freedom and salvation is by pointing out sin and saying that it's off. You're separated from God, that is broken, that is not right. And because he loves us and desires all the beauty that he just shared at the first part of the section, of friendship, of unconditional love of being chosen because of all of that existing. Jesus has come to point out sin and say, that's not right, that is off. And he alone has the authority to do so because he is God. And this is not just religion. And that's a point that needs to be made. Jesus comes confronting religious systems, pointing out the sin in religion. And that got a really strong reaction that led him to be killed. Jesus is hated for exposing sin. And the world hated Jesus first. And Jesus has called us to follow him, to be called out of the world. And number four, he then says, and you're not going to experience it any differently than I did. Because a servant isn't greater than the master. So if the master experiences that kind of reaction, that's what you're going to expect too. It's the way the master and servant thing works. So Jesus and his kingdom are different. And he's providing different answers than the world would give. Different values than the world would give. Different vision of life than even religion would give. He comes with an upside-down kingdom. And the world does hate that. Maybe caveat number two, though. This teaching of Jesus about the hatred that would come from a world system living uh, apart from the kingdom of God, this is not some defense of Christians being jerks, arrogant, mean, abusive, power-hungry, and then in response to our mean, jerk, power-hungry response, getting hatred, like, see, the world hates us. Like, no, that was rude. So this is not, well, the world's going to hate you because you're being mean. No, this is different than that. This is not somehow giving rationale or reason for followers of Jesus to be doing whatever they want to, and then when the world responds back, says, oh, they're persecuting us. That's different. This is not a pass to treat the world like a pompous jerk. But I will say this, and this hits hard, I think, in our current cultural moment. If you, and as you stand for the kingdom of God, above all, and you seek to follow the way of Jesus, and you see the way that Jesus plays this out in all the parts of our lives, because Jesus as Savior, as the the Lord that he claims to be, he claims every part of the domain of this world and every domain of your life. There's not a part of your life that he won't put his finger on. And if you try to adopt his view on human sexuality, and you take seriously his call to love your neighbor as yourself, And if you take seriously what he says about loving your enemies, and if you seek to stand for biblical justice, and you stand in the place to fight for the stranger and the poor, and you seek to live a life of hospitality, of loving the stranger, generosity to those in poverty. And you seek to defend life truly from womb to tomb and submit to the authority of God. And you seek to stand underneath truth with Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And you speak to, seek to live out the gospel of the kingdom to those that don't want to submit to the ways of God. I will tell you, you will get a reaction and the world will hate you. And that will come from both the religious and the irreligious. Because Jesus comes offering a third way that doesn't fit our categories of religious, irreligious, left, right. Jesus comes offering a third way. And it won't be a mild response. So, this is a serious, sober word that Jesus gives. But it's the beauty of the vow for us to count the cost of friendship with Jesus. This isn't just believe something so that something after you die takes place. This has real implications for the here and the now. I was listening to a podcast this week which was talking about the surprising gift of COVID. And I I don't use that phrase to diminish just the pain of death and suffering and loss that's been the last two years for our world. Uh, But but dealing with the cards that we have been dealt, he was making this observation that that, that the hidden gift of COVID, the hidden gift of this pandemic has been this, that COVID has been a crippling blow to convenient consumer cultural Christianity. which is actually a good thing. Painful. But it has been a blow to convenient, consumer, cultural Christianity. And it's made people have to rethink a lot. It's made people rethink, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be part of a church? What does it mean to pursue the kingdom of God? And those that have just done it for cultural, convenient reasons... Like, oh, well, just kind of, thats what we do on Sundays. We just kind of go to church. And that's less so in the Northwest, but there's still part of that that rings, even here in the Northwest. Many in that camp have said, yeah, I, I don't think so. And have had to reconsider a lot. Here's how Jesus ends this section. He brings it back to the Holy Spirit. And he says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so he talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to be given the Spirit of truth, the helper, the paraclete. We'll talk more about the Spirit in the coming chapter. The Holy Spirit will come and 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 witness, give witness to Jesus and who he is and that his way is better. And he says, this is your job too. In the face of a world system set apart to the kingdom, set against the kingdom of God, in the face of hatred, here's, here's your call. Some will say, the response of the church then is to run away, flee from the world. Some say the response of the church is to fight. Come here, I'm going to punch you in the face. In Jesus' name. Jesus says, Here's what I want you to do bear witness to me, testify to me that we get to bear witness of what it means. To be loved and called and let in and chosen. What is it like to be worthy of His death for us? It's something that the global church has done for a long time. And even now here in our country, we get a chance. get a taste of what it means to abide in Christ. To have friendship with God. What does that mean? To live in the world, and not be of the world. To be separate from the world, and yet in the world. To love the world, and to give witness of Jesus. That he's worth it, that he's good, that he loves, that he laid down his life for us, that he forgives us, he heals us. Because there really isn't any such thing as convenient Christianity. And there really isn't any such thing as kind of a riding the fence thing. Kind of, sort of, maybe. Jesus wants a, a yes. Which has a thousand no's attached to it as well. And as Jesus says, the world will hate you. Persecute you. And as some around the world have experienced, maybe even kill you. But then Jesus also says, cheer up, I've overcome the world. And you're appointed to love one another, right? That's what he kept saying, love one another, love one another. As you've received my love, that kind of friendship, now you get to extend it. You're appointed to bear fruit. You're appointed to testify, to give witness to how Jesus' love makes all the difference. And I believe that as we learn to abide in him and be friends with Jesus, that actually, again, in this season, God is doing a good thing, a good work, renewing his church. Are you a friend of Jesus by faith? That's a question to consider tonight. Because his offer is that. Friendship. By faith in him. By repentance. Turning from the world to Jesus. And are you willing to count that cost? Are you willing to stand with Jesus, for Jesus, in a world that is not Friendly to that. Let's pray. Lord, there's such good news in this. Your love is so amazing. Your offer of forgiveness, of friendship. But it's beautiful. And and, and it comes with a cost. And Lord, I believe you're worth it. So Jesus, I pray that you would give us imagination, that you would give us faith to walk with you, to abide in you, and to see what abiding with you looks like in all the dimensions of our life. And Lord, I pray for those hard moments, those hard places, those hard conversations. Lord, I know in those times when the, it feels like there's that, the opposition is heightened, God, I know there's a tendency to want to back down or soft pedal or turn away. Jesus, may we stand with you in what is true and right and good and may we not settle for anything less than your best in our lives and in this world. So God, help us. Heal us. May we know how to be your friends. May we know how to engage the world. May we love as you loved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.